Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, the deadly remnants of war that New Zealand's military has kept secret for years. One of those secrets is gut-wrenching. Deaths the New Zealand public has never been told about, including one explosion leading to these three mothers burying seven children. Stuff Circuit investigative journalists Paula Penfold and Eugene Bingham have uncovered what the New Zealand Defence Force left behind in Afghanistan. Deaths and injuries from military devices and firing ranges used by Kiwi soldiers. When you fire a rocket or a, or a projectile of some kind, when it gets to the target, it's supposed to go bang. For various reasons, there's a failure rate on devices. They don't always go bang when they're supposed to go bang which means that they litter the ground in countries like Afghanistan, and they're there for years often before a child or a a herder comes along and picks it up. Sometimes they, they do go bang. And that is exactly what happened in Bamiyan, not once, but several times. Imagine if this was Waiudu. We would not leave a firing range like that. We would not leave it unfenced. We would not leave it unmarked. Paula and Eugene started looking into it when they learnt about seven children killed in one explosion a year after New Zealand pulled out. What we understand is that one of them found something on the firing range which is just less than a kilometre away from the village where they live. They brought it back and they were playing on a potato farm just by the side of the road, as children do in Afghanistan. They roam pretty freely. And no one knows precisely how it happened, but the device exploded and seven children were killed. Can you describe this environment? It's quite close to Bamiyan town and it's a, it's a little village just on the outskirts. The field itself where it happened is just across the road from the village. It's an area where children play regularly. The village itself has uh, mud brick houses. Uh, it's bustling, it's busy, lots of people live there, lots of children running around, which kind of makes, you know, when, you, when you're there, you just sense the sadness of these children who are missing because of what happened mm. in April 2014. The mother of two of the children who died told us that she was visiting her brother nearby and they heard an explosion and her daughter-in-law came running and told her that she had lost her children. One of the things that we found out once we'd left the interview with the three mothers of the seven children who were killed was that actually there was an eighth who was also caught up in that explosion, Muhammad, who would have only been four at the time. They didn't know where he was for three days and three nights and they found him hiding in a cave. How did you come across this story? We first came across suggestions of it a few years ago. In 2017, we went to Afghanistan for a documentary called The Valley, Mm. which looked at New Zealand's deployment to Afghanistan 2003 to 2013. And in the course of that, we heard about an incident that had happened in 2011 on another firing range. And at that time, we asked Defence, were there any other incidents? And they said no. Not to our knowledge, there's been no other incidents. But we kind of wondered whether there were, given some of the things that we'd heard from sources. We started to look around at another story, actually, an unrelated story, about military waste, generally. And in the course of those that research, we came across a suggestion about deaths on firing ranges, incidents on firing ranges. We ended up speaking to uh, somebody in Afghanistan who put us onto um, some really good information about what you know what had happened and, mm. and details of what had happened. And we spoke to um, the United Nations, the United Nations Mine Action Service in Kabul, who confirmed 
uh, yes, we have a database. And I remember ha- having that conversation with the head of the United Nations Mine Action Service in Kabul that afternoon when he went through the database and just said, oh, yeah, I'll just pull it up here and started rattling through these incidents that happened and, you know, it just got more and more, wow. You know, what, like, what kind of incidents was he talking he about? He was just going through, you know, oh, here's a shepherd who, was, who uh, has been injured picking up a, a device. Here's a, a, a child who's been playing with a device and it's gone off. Oh, and here's April 2014, seven children dead. And I just remember being shocked. And at that time, was he talking specifically about this place in Bamiyan where... Yeah, these were all incidents that had happened in Bamiyan. So this is these incidents involving 17 civilians. Nine separate incidents on New Zealand firing ranges involving 17 civilians. And the thing for the UN is that, you know, they're dealing with this all over Afghanistan, obviously. This is not peculiar to New Zealand or to Bamiyan, but clearly that's our focus of interest. Sure, and just as a reminder, what's the link between Bamiyan and New Zealand? So that's where New Zealand was assigned, Bamiyan, the whole of Bamiyan province. So we went there as a provincial reconstruction team in 2003, and we exited there in April 2013. And the brief was that this was a hearts and minds mission, that we were there to help the local people recover after the overthrow of the Taliban and to help with building schools and roads and infrastructure and wells. And we did do that. We, we did do that. And the people in Bamiyan, many of them feel very, very fondly towards New Zealand and the soldiers who were there and are appreciative of our efforts. But the thing about this investigation is that it shows not just good things happened in Bamiyan. We are responsible for the deaths and injuries of 17 civilians. And our military has known about this for some time. I guess someone would ask, well, if, if New Zealand soldiers are there for a rebuild effort, why are they using firing ranges? It's important to remember this was a military deployment. You know, there were it was soldiers who were going there and there were areas within Bamiyan that were dangerous. You know, ten soldiers lost their lives in, in Bamiyan while we were there in those ten years. It's normal that there were firing ranges that we would expect that our soldiers would be doing drills, firing their weapons to make sure that they're they're working. That's not unusual, even though it was a provincial reconstruction team. But what is unusual is what happened afterwards and the fact that the firing ranges weren't cleaned up properly when we left, which we keep thinking, imagine if this is Waiuru. We would not leave a firing range like that. We would not leave it unfenced. We would not leave it unmarked. We would not leave unexploded ordnance on the firing range. So you had all this information from the UN. Is that when you decided that you would go there and look into it? Yeah, since we had been there in 2017 for the Valley, we had worked with local people who we knew were going to be really, really helpful on the ground. And so we decided to not over-investigate it too much before we left. We wanted to establish for ourselves on the ground what had happened. But of course, we needed to be clear that we had a story before we left because it's a significant undertaking on so many different levels, including obviously security. But we were extremely confident that we had the story. We knew that the information was right. Part of it came from the United Nations. Uh, And so we got there and... So it got more and more disturbing every day while we were there. Every day it was like something new was being uncovered. This little boy, Muhammad, the eighth child, when this explosion happened, he was underneath the bodies of his cousins and siblings. 
He says they learned Muhammad was under the other children when the device exploded. Maybe they or their bodies protected him. And in the confusion which followed, he came here. And since there were no houses around at that time, then nobody knew he was here. And this little boy was terrified and ran away and hid in a cave for three days. That was something we had no idea about until we got up there. The information from the local investigators had been really thorough, so we had names and ages, and across the nine incidents, we had really detailed information about what had happened and whereabouts and what injuries they'd suffered or whether they died. And so we were really confident that we that the information was solid. But as Eugene said, we wanted to meet the people and put a face, as we say in the documentary, to the database. And so we arrived at that village where the three mothers of the seven children live and we sat down to do the interview with one of the mothers, Baskul, and one of the first things she said to us was, please do not refresh my sorrow. We have lost them and nothing can bring them back. And as a journalist, that's, that's a hard thing to hear because... You know, we are here because we want to expose what had happened to their children. But, of course, we are revisiting that horror upon them because they have to talk about it. And so that's really hard. But as we were talking to Baskell in her, you know, mud brick house, the face of another woman appeared at the window and then another woman came into the room and it was the other two mothers of the seven children. And so there we sat with the three of them lined up talking about these children aged between only five and 12 years old that had died. And it was a really affecting experience, um, even more so when we went from there, because we knew from our previous trip to Afghanistan that there's something really haunting about the grave sites, the cemeteries for people who are killed and or die in Afghanistan. And so we went with these mothers to the cemetery where these seven children were buried. And honestly, it was just one of the most overwhelming scenes, you know, I think we've ever witnessed in terms of the sadness. So you had their story. And then did people in the, in the village, in the area, start telling you about more stories? Yeah, well, while we were with the mothers in the sort of aftermath of the interview, uh, one of the brothers of two of the children who died said, oh, I think I know someone else. And we went and found this other guy who, with his brother, had been collecting firewood when suddenly there was a massive explosion and they were thrown to the ground, both of them injured. And then his mother kind of interjected in the interview and she was very firm. She wanted to tell us that she'd been to the Kiwi base to where the New Zealand PRT was based to complain, to say, why did you do this? Why has this happened? Uh, and she told us that about that day, about going there, and about speaking to uh, somebody from the PRT, we haven't been able to establish who that was, to complain about what had happened. And journalistically, we want to be really sure on the ground, don't we, that what she's saying would be right. And so mm. while it's not in the documentary, you know, she described for us exactly what the PRT looked like and exactly the kinds of uniforms that would have been worn. And so it was very, very clear that what she was telling us was credible. She walked us through exactly the steps that she would have taken to get in there and they matched up with what we know about what it took to get into the base. She talked about the uniforms, she talked about the patches. And she got no response at all? Well, she did get a response. She said they were angry with her and said that they were not to blame. And that was it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then we found that uh, 
another village elder, a leader of the village council at the time, had made a complaint about that very same incident. And so by the time we had finished filming, we had three separate complaints urging action on New Zealand firing ranges. Have you had any contact from anyone from New Zealand, uh, PRT, army, government? No. No. You are the first. They tell us we are the first people to come. And what has been the response from the Mm. Defence Force? Well, where do we start? On our way to Afghanistan, actually, we were emailed an official information act response from NZDF to somebody else. In that official information act response, they said that the firing range was cleared in 2013. And so we wondered what that could possibly mean, and it didn't stack up, obviously, with anything that we knew. And so that formed a very uh, solid avenue for investigation while we were on the ground. So when you say this was a letter that was sent to you, was this not directly sent to you? No, so it was an official information act request of response to Human Rights Watch, The Human Rights Watch organisation had also heard about this last year and had submitted an official information request to get more detail. And this was Defence's response to them that we were reading, that we saw. And so it told us, you know, what Defence thought of what had happened, including the fact, as Paula said, that this range had been cleared, which was a surprise to us. We didn't know this. Mm. And so when we got to Bamiyan, we set about trying to figure out, is this true? And we spoke to local uh, people who had been engaged in a massive survey that was done of the New Zealand firing ranges last year. And they were very helpful. They were able to tell us how much of the firing ranges were still dangerous and you know, what the situation was with this clearance. And eventually we got hold of the clearance certificate, the document that was signed off by the Afghanistan government to say, yes, this is, this is cleared. It turns out that it was a minuscule part of the firing range, about 2% that was cleared in 2013. It wasn't the whole firing range. And the locals pointed out to us, the local experts pointed out to us that not only was the rest of the firing range still dangerous, but that in the interim, in the six years that have followed, uh, unexploded ordnance and other devices have probably been washed down from the hills back into that area. So even though that area has been cleared, it needs clearing again properly. And just back to the beginnings of the last answer in terms of NZDF saying that there was no evidence connecting that particular firing range to the deaths of the seven children. Well, the UN and the local investigators say that it was NATO, ISAF, which in Bamiyan is New Zealand. We are the only, we were the only military that was in Bamiyan, so they shoot it home to us. By then, had you approached the Defence Force for any kind of comment on what you'd found out? We did that when we got back. They won't do an interview with you. No, no. Does this date back to your previous <laughs> documentary where they said that they didn't how long trust have, you? How long have we been asking Defence yeah. for an interview now? Since 2013, we've been asking Defence <laughs> for an interview. They've <laughs> never done an interview with us. So what did you email them questions? And... Yeah, so we, we asked for an interview and we said it will cover these things. And we set out the main allegations that are in the documentary. We got back a response saying we won't do an interview, but we'll send you a statement. And you've sent me a a copy of that statement. Mm -hmm. And NZDF says none of the incidents have been directly linked to its activities. And 
And there seems to be a suggestion that because, you know, Afghanistan has been going through war after war after war, that um, these devices could have been from the when the Russians were there or perhaps even from Afghanistan. Yes, well, uh, Patrick Fouché, who we spoke to from the UN, from Anmas in Kabul, puts it really well when he says... Is it a mathematical possibility? Yes. Um, is it a mathematical possibility that the firing range was used prior to New Zealand's arrival, subsequent to New Zealand's arrival by others while New Zealand was deployed and that the particular weapon was someone else's? Yeah, that's a mathematical possibility. Is it a reasonable likelihood? No. And the reason for that is that the database shows that there was a spike in these incidents when the firing ranges started being used. So there, and the other thing that's really important to note is that when you look at that clearance certificate that the NZDF points to, in that clearing, there was, for instance, 540 40 mil grenades found, which New Zealand uses. And so there are many separate ways to corroborate that it is uh, extremely likely that New Zealand is responsible. In this statement they're saying this range was cleared in October 2013 by a contractor of the Mine Action Coordination Centre of Afghanistan and was assessed as being free from landmines and explosive remnants. But as you point out, that is a, a tiny fraction mm. of the whole area that they've used as a firing range. Mm. Less than 2%. And so the, the survey showed that 18 million square metres needs to be cleared. 297,000 square metres was cleared. Could there have been any kind of corruption involving the mind clearance people and the issuing of that certificate? No. I mean, the information has come from a variety of different sources and we've spoken to the people on the ground who have done the survey and the uh, clearance certificate is very clear and also NZDF is relying on it. And so if you... If there's any fault with it, that's the evidence that they're relying on to say that this firing range was cleared. They don't point out, obviously, that only a tiny portion of it was cleared. And that's the point, really, isn't it? OK, they might have cleared this area, but it's a much huge mm. area. That... And, and the point about it being a huge area is that this is not just dormant land that was assigned as a firing range and then would kind of stay in perpetuity as a firing range. This is land that the locals need to use. Not only do children play on it, but, you know, this is a poor community. And so children and adults go into that land, use that land all the time to collect firewood because as we filmed some children coming down from one of the firing ranges with firewood because they don't have money to pay for gas for cooking and heating. This is, this is how they live. And so it's not as though this area is not used. It's vital that the locals can use it, and that's why they plead for it to be properly cleaned up. The other statement that the NZDF says is that DMAC, which is the Director of Mine Action Coordination, did a technical survey of areas to be cleared in late December 2018, so late last year, and since then the Defence Force has been engaged with DMAC to create a plan to do this clearance. So on the one hand is the Defence Force saying it's not our fault, but on the other hand they're saying, well, now we're putting actually $10 million into clearing the land. Yeah, that was the interesting thing about their statement and that they say they take the responsibility to make sure they're cleared properly seriously, which is good, and that they're putting up $10 million to get this job done properly, which sort of doesn't sit well with their claims that 
there's nothing. It's nothing to do with New Zealand. There's nothing to see here. Look away. I don't mm. think they're doing it just to be generous. Surely, ten million dollars is ten million dollars. It, it appears. I like the way you phrase that question. It's contradictory, the position, isn't it? But it appears they're now taking responsibility. And is that because of questions that you have raised, or is it because of the Human Rights Watch report? Well, the United Nations, in the background through UNMAS, has been putting a lot of pressure, or trying to put a lot of pressure on, has been talking to New Zealand officials uh, to try and get this sorted out. You know, just do the right thing. Get mm. this cleaned up. It's worth noting, though, this is not a criticism of New Zealand soldiers who were there. And The Valley, the, our last documentary, was not a criticism of New Zealand soldiers on the ground. Who, who we want to ask questions of and who we still have questions of is Command and Wellington. They are the ones who are making the decisions about the firing ranges. Mm. This has been dragging on for six years and... The responsibility for that lies in Wellington. It also lies politically, doesn't it? Because the other issue, of course, that arises is what compensation have these families of the dead or the the victims who have survived but are injured, what compensation have they had? The answer is they've had nothing. They've had no contact from New Zealand military or government. And, you know... The, the doctrine usually is that if a, follow, if a foreign army has caused something that has cost the life or has injured locals in Afghanistan and other war zones, they are compensated for that, and we have not done that. And from doing this investigation, are you you're both absolutely certain that it is the New Zealand Defence Force explosive devices that have what killed... What we're very sure of is that devices that came from the New Zealand firing ranges are responsible for these deaths and injuries. So, yes, we are confident not only from talking to the locals who, you know, live adjacent to those firing ranges, but talking to the experts on the ground, the UN and the demining service, the Danish demining group. We're really confident of this information. What do they all say about that then? Well, I mean, what's their impression of New Zealand They're kind of of matter-of-fact about it, but I think the most interesting response in terms of responsibility, in a way, was from Dr Alberto Cairo, wasn't it, who runs a Red Cross clinic in Kabul, which fits prosthetic, makes and fits prosthetic limbs. And he was pretty angry, wasn't he? It's simply terrible. It's something that cannot be accepted. I'm not blaming New Zealanders rather than other places. All, anybody who come here to fight or... uh, to put landmines or just to, to, to yeah, here for some reason, cannot leave behind anything unexploded. If they bring something in, they have to clean. This is unacceptable. This is it, it's simply that something that makes me sick. Why wouldn't the Defence Force clean it up? Why? So the def- the Defence Force says that when it left, it cleaned it up to standards that were in place at the time. Or it was cleaned up to standards yeah. at the time. Yeah. And the, the UN makes an interesting distinction. It says when militaries leave an area, they often clean it to sort of military standards, which is basically, you know, sort of sweep up and, and, and move on quickly. What doesn't happen and what needs to happen is that it gets cleaned up to a humanitarian standard. Alidot says simply, we ask as soon as possible for the area to be cleared because it is dangerous and people need to use it. So that it's, there's nothing there, so that the locals can properly use that land, so that the children can play, that the shepherds can 
look after their animals there, that people can go and collect firewood without any fear of coming across one of these devices that can kill them. And it is interesting now that there's this implicit acknowledgement through the $10 million that NZDF has set aside for the clearance. The question is now, why are we still talking about it? I mean, these Mm -hmm. complaints were made in 2013 and and since. So why has it taken six years for this to happen? It still has not been cleared. They have the money set aside, but they haven't done anything with it. Those demining groups are ready to go as soon as we commit that money those firing ranges can be cleared. There's a saying that the locals say to each other in Afghanistan that Afghan blood is cheap. And that resonated with us, which is why it you know, is one of the concluding lines in our documentary, because it is hard to argue with. When you see the fact that they've had no contact, there's been no compensation, their complaints have been disregarded or ignored, it seems like a very apt line. Could the UN compel us to clean up and compensate? No. They this can't is, force us to. They're encouraging us to. As they keep saying, you know, this is the right thing to do. Let's just do it. That's the detail for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Adrian Holley and produced by Alexia Russell. Thanks to Paula Penfold and Eugene Bingham from Stuff Circuit. Kakite anō.